Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers. Great to have you with us. This is Tracy L. Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show. We've got a special show lined up for you today. My guest is live in the studio with me, so that's a treat for me. I'm really happy that so many people are listening to the show um, live and in the archives and the iTunes podcast channel, so thanks for tuning in, and I hope you're enjoying the interviews. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. And I have someone here whose mind is an unusual journey in and of itself, and he's laughing now. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. And the um, the live chat's open, so if you're out there, uh, log in and say hi and type any questions in. In the com- Oh, email me in between shows if you want to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at tracy at tracylslatin.com. And that's Tracy, T-R-A-C-I, at Tracy L. Slatton. And that's S like Sam, L-A-T-T-O-N.com. In the coming weeks, we've got some really fascinating guests coming on. On Sunday, February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, at 1 p.m., I will be interviewing my Valentine, sculptor Sabin Howard. Sabin will be on talking about the World War I Memorial Commission that he won along with his partner, architect-in-training Joe Weishauer. On February 26th, which is um, a Friday, a special date for independent artists and thinkers, at 1 p.m., Commissioner Edwin Fountain of the World War I Centennial Commission will be on. Um, so tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am so delighted today to have children's book author Bruce Coville on. Bruce Coville was born in Syracuse, New York, in 1950. His family lived in farm territory about 20 miles north of Syracuse, and he grew up around the corner from his grandparents' dairy farm, where he spent a great deal of time dodging cows and chores as well as he was able. 
As a young reader, he loved Mary Poppins and Dr. Doolittle, so did I, and also read lots of things people considered junk, Nancy Drew, The Hardy Boys, Tom Swift, and zillions of comic books. That's got my reading list, Bruce. In 1978, he published his first book, The Foolish Giant, a picture book illustrated by his wife, Catherine. Since then, he has published over 100 books for children and young adults, ranging from picture books to young adult novels. Among his best-known titles are My Teacher is an Alien, um, Into the Land of the Unicorns, and Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher. His work has appeared in 16 languages and won Children's Choice Awards in numerous states, including twice in California. Very cool. A frequent speaker at schools and conferences, Bruce has three times been opening or closing keynoter for the National Conference of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. He travels the world to speak in schools, and he has presented at American or international schools in Sao Paulo, London, Madrid, Shanghai, Delhi, Seoul, and many others. In addition to his writing, in 2001, Bruce founded Full Cast Audio, an audiobook publishing company devoted to producing full cast, unabridged recordings of great children's books. He has produced over 100 audiobooks, frequently also directing or performing. His recording of Shannon Hale's The Goose Girl was awarded the Audio Publishers Association, Audi, for achievement in production, their highest honor. Bruce lives in Syracuse, New York, with his wife, author, and illustrator, Catherine Coville. You can visit him on the web at www.brucecoville.com. Bruce, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Tracy. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> so, what's your question? Okay. Where are we going to start? Well, I have a special starting question for you, and that is, this is unusual, but I think it's the burning question on everyone's mind. That is, are you or have you ever been an extraterrestrial? <laughs> Um, I had certain teachers who probably thought that I was. I turned that around by writing a book called My Teacher's an Alien. Um, I have dreamed of being an extraterrestrial. have always wanted to meet some ETs. And part of what I do when I'm writing those kind of books is give myself the experience I wanted. I didn't meet any in real life. So I write about it and have the experience that way. So the rumor that you're part, that you have like some percentage of alien DNA, we should discount that? Maybe. <laughs> okay, so here's the question I usually start with with my guests, and it's a big question. So um, take it and run with it. Okay, and that is, how did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be an author and an audiobook publisher? Were reading and writing major presences in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? So Start with your childhood and lead up till now. <laughs> well, you opened a big can. I can talk for probably 20, 30 minutes answering this question. Um, reading and writing are inextricably linked. And I can tell you specifically when I became a reader. And that was uh, when my father, who was a traveling salesman and not around much, so his time was very valuable. I had two younger sibs at that point, three eventually. Uh, getting dad's attention in his, in his time was important. Dad took me in the living room one night, put me in his lap. It's the only time he ever did it. I don't know what prompted him. And opened this thick, ugly brown book called Tom Swift and the City of Gold. Mm -hmm. Pure pulp adventure. But there was something about that book that uh, tapped into what Robert Graves, the poet, calls the one story. In his poem to Juan at the Winter Solstice, he writes, um, There is one story and one story only that will prove what you're telling whether it's learned bard or gifted child, to it all lesser lines or gods belong that startle with their shining, such common stories as they stray into. In terms of the writing, this is a very common story. 
but there was something about the mythic journey in there. But the more important thing was that it was my father reading to me, which gave me permission as a boy to read. Reading is, in this culture, for a number of reasons, a gender issue. And I can go on a long riff on that sideways at some point if, if you want to. But that opened up reading to me. And really the reason I wanted to, to write was because I loved books so much. I would read a book that made me laugh, made me cry, made me lie awake in bed at night shivering in terror, which I thought was kind of cool too. And I think, I want to do that. I want to make books that will make other people feel the way this book made me feel. I wanted to make the thing that I loved. Well, I didn't know right away about, about writing it was sixth grade, and, and in the same way I can point to my dad and say that moment opened the world of books to me, my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Crandall, opened the world of writing to me. Now, I might have known earlier, but in those days, they didn't have us write that much in school. And the only way you learn to write is by writing. You don't learn by filling in blanks or circumstances. You'll learn to write by writing. And she had us write all year long. She was working her way toward whole language, which is the way all teachers teach, you know, that got clubbed to death like a baby harp seal, but teachers who know how to teach are still using elements of what was called whole language. It wasn't called whole language back then either. And she had us write all year long. I failed at it all year long because <laughs> we always had to write about stuff that she assigned, assigned to us. Now, real writing comes from inside. When you write about what's in you, you need to express. And I can remember the failures. Now, sixth grade is more than 50 years ago for me. And I can remember the failures and I think it's important to realize why that is. Every writer I know can quote his or her bad reviews. Not the good reviews, just I see you rolling your eyes. Yeah. Um, and that's because we are, as humans, hardwired in our brains to remember pain to avoid repeating it. Now, it's a very useful thing in terms of physical survival. The problem is our brains don't distinguish between physical pain and psychological pain which is what causes a lot of shutdown that happens in human beings. You watch kids come into school in kindergarten. They come rolling through the door like a bunch of puppies and will and can do anything you ask them to. By 6th, 7th, 8th grade, that's all shutting down. And it's because every time you experience a negative response to what you're doing, when an adult yells at you or something, when your friends make fun of you for something, something inside you closes closes down. This door is constantly shutting in kids' hearts. And the job of the adults who work with them is to help them kick those doors back open so they feel free to go forward with stuff. So that's a prelude to why I can tell you what I did wrong in Mrs. Crandall's class. She uh, played music for us once. And we were supposed to, it was Finlandia, which is a piece I still love. In fact, uh, as a side note, the book I just finished has a finished background. I played Sibelius all the time that I was working on it. But you're supposed to write out how the music made us feel. And she read them all out loud. And I remember vividly one kid wrote, the music makes me feel like a king marching over the, uh, over the countryside. Another kid wrote, the music makes me feel like, a, like an eagle soaring over the countryside. She got to mine and it said, well, the music's getting louder. It's slowing down some. It's going faster now. It was, I was like the poster boy for OCD, you know. Another time, she provided us with two topics, rage and my thumb. Now, My thumb? My thumb. I was, <laughs> I was sophisticated enough in my language to know that rage means a great anger. But I had everybody write about that. Uh, but, but I also knew, uh, this is the more sophisticated part, I knew that rage means something that's suddenly very popular, a fad. It's new, it's now, it's hot, it's hip, it's here, it's us. So I thought, well, I could write about that. 
So what becomes a, a fad? It becomes popular. Clothing? I, you know, when we say marriage, have somebody help me get dressed in the morning. You know, I come out of the bedroom. My wife says, that shirt, those pants, go back and try again. Um, music. I loved music, but did not know enough about it to write about it. I loved food. I was already starting to cook at that point. I thought I could invent a recipe that could become a fad because, you know, when we were kids, we have delusions of grandeur as opposed to when we grow up and have delusions of competence. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, made, I couldn't try anything out in the oven. We were writing in class. I made up a recipe for fruit salad, titled it Rage, handed it in, totally baffled the poor woman. She, she said, you didn't get it. Try the other one, my thumb. Now, I was too dumb to know that my thumb is a nonfiction topic. Everybody else was writing an essay. You know, everybody was looking at their thumb. It was like a bunch of little Rembrandts going, oh, there's my thumb, and writing about how they used it, how they couldn't live without it. I wrote an adventure story. My right thumb got lost. My left thumb went looking for it. <laughs> And in this, you can see the roots of my future career. But at the end of the year, she did something really wonderful. She said, we're going to write a short story. Uh, and she gave us time. It was maybe four or five weeks, I think. An extended thing. It wasn't something you didn't grasp. We're going to read them all out loud. And that was all she said. It had to come from inside. And every kid in the class did a good job, including me. When I wrote that story, that was the first time I thought, I would like to be a writer. I would like to be a writer. Well, you know, you change your mind when you're a kid, but... When I was um, going out with a woman who became my wife, when I was 19, her mother gave me a copy of Winnie the Pooh to read. Now, I had tried to read Pooh when I was a kid, and I didn't get it, because I take my fantasy very seriously. Mm-hmm. Alice falls through um, the rabbit hole, she's in Wonderland, that made sense to me. You go through the wardrobe, you're in Narnia, that made sense to me. Christopher Robin is dragging the bear down the stairs, and two pages later, they're in the Hundred Acre Wood, and they didn't get there anyway, and I thought it made no sense, and I put it back on the shelf. But when I read it when I was 19, I was old enough to get it, to get the humor, the slyness, uh, the delight of it. And the thing that I loved about it, one of the things I loved about it, that book was made in a way that books aren't very often these days. It's beautifully designed with those brilliant illustrations. And there's an almost cinematic flow between the, and the text. And I was going out with my wife, my wife-to-be, Kathy, who's a brilliant artist. And I said, we can do that. We could work together and make books like this. Uh, so that was the first time. That's a moment. I thought off down about writing for kids. I always wanted to work with kids. I loved kids. And I'm, I'd like to think long term. And I'm fairly radical in my politics. And the most radical thing I could think of to do was work with kids. Because we're always trying to change things for today. But if you want to change the world, you have to change what's going to happen in 10, 20 years. And that's what working with kids is about. That's why I became a, an elementary school teacher and why I pursued writing for kids for so long. Um, I think I've talked enough. We can talk about audio in a minute, but that was a long answer. So let me turn this back to you for a second. That was amazing, wonderful. I took oops. sorry. I took a lot of notes to ask questions. Um, were you really a grave digger and a cookware salesman? And what was teaching like? I was indeed a I was indeed a grave digger. Um, it was nepotism. My grandfather ran the cemetery. <laughs> Uh, basically, it was, a, it was a small country cemetery, and it had been uh, built on, started on land that my mother's family had owned you know, some generations back. And my grandfather was a full-time dairy farmer, but he was also the caretaker, because we didn't have that many people uh, being buried every year. And then when he reached a certain age, he got tired of digging graves and trained me to do it. And yeah, then I, I, I was, and we did. Did he pay you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> And actually, I got paid pretty well because it was paid by the job and I could dig faster than he could. So, 
I also mowed that cemetery. My, my, I knew every gravestone in that cemetery because I mowed them for years. I mowed all around them. Um, but, you know, physical labor of that sort, repetitive, is actually very good for thinking time. So I loved doing that work because I could think while I was doing it. And I have laid down in the bottom of a grave and looked up to see what it looks like from the bottom because when else will you have a chance to do that? Right. So I did that. I was digging graves off and on for years. And this is real digging. We did not use a backhoe. I got out the shovel and I dug. Oh. <laughs> so, um, and cookware salesman. Yeah, that was one of the many part-time jobs that I had uh, working my way, uh, trying to keep body and soul together while we were trying to sell our first book. Um, the the company that I worked for, Miracle Made, the deal was that we would come into somebody's house, they would invite five or six other couples, and Kathy would have done the prep work with all the vegetables and everything. And then I would run this line of patter while I cooked the meal in front of them. They watched me cook the meal. And part of the boss's uh, feeling was that uh, it didn't, you didn't have to be that good at cooking. If you looked kind of crummy doing it, but the meal came out well, the women would think, well, he's such a clown. What could I do with this cookware? The very, the very first meal that we did this with, my, my sort of uh, maiden run, there was a big electric unit that we were supposed to, it was a big fry pan that could hold a lot of stuff. Uh, not a fry pan, actually, kind of a griddle. And you were supposed to preheat the pan. You were also supposed to demonstrate that it was safe for a child to grab because the, the electrode parts were, were hidden inside, so you couldn't get a shock from it. I got the order reversed. So um, instead of, you were supposed to, because you put it in your tongue, you put the, the probe on your tongue and say, see, it would be plugged in and turned on. And you say, see, no shock. And then you preheat it. Uh, preheat the grill. I actually did it backwards. I preheated the grill, uh-huh. <laughs> pulled this thing out, and said, and there's no electricity coming from this. Watch. And I put it on my tongue, and I could hear my tongue sizzle. Oh, and I, oh, oh. And I, <laughs> and I, I tried to cover it, and I said, see? No shock. <laughs> did you make any sales? I Actually, it was one of, my, one of my best initial sales. I think everybody felt so sorry for me. They bought, <laughs> bought a frying pan at least. <laughs> Um, so, yes, I was a cookware salesman. Not the happiest job of my life. And uh, I know you were a teacher, so you want to talk about getting into teaching? I was. Excuse me. Is back for a second? Okay. I, ha- I have uh, several questions, so we can, when you are ready. Okay. Teaching. Um, I love teaching. I was in college, and actually I, I dropped out of college uh, we had our first child very young, and at one point I was working two jobs, two and a half jobs, trying to write, and I I left school. I was working in the assembly line at IBM and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to write, but obviously I wasn't going to make a living at that right away. I thought, what I want is to work with kids. It's what I love. Uh, it's where my passion is. I should go back and get my degree as a teacher. So I, I did that. I started at second grade, moved to, I loved second grade, but I got to fourth grade and that was homecoming for me. I am at the same emotional level as most fourth graders. I love books for that age. Um, the seven years I spent teaching are in many ways the foundation of my career as a children's book writer because I spent time with kids, observing kids, helping kids, and all that went into uh, the hopper, which, what you, the database you build in your brain. And I draw on it still when I'm writing for kids. And I have based characters on kids that I had. I use my knowledge of the classroom in writing, trying to write realistically. 
even though I write these fanciful books, I want them grounded in reality. So the child reading says, oh, yeah, this guy knows what school's like. And then they'll follow you on the adventure that you take them on. I agree with that. So talk about whole language. You said it got clubbed to death like a baby seal. But so talk about whole language, what it is and why it's important. Uh, I'm not sure what we're calling whole language these days. But it's a philosophy of teaching that um, calls for engagement with language as a living, active thing. Not taught in separate units. It makes communication the more important thing. Uh, services, I can't remember the last time this survey was done, but kids in America have thought for a long time that spelling is the most important part of language arts. And the reason for that is that's what we test. And we send a message by what we test and what we give time to. Spelling is easy to check, easy to test. We give it precedence. It sends the wrong message to kids. Whole language is about reading real books. Um, you know, one, one of the things I've often said is the most important aspect of, of creating a book is passion, having a, a passion for what you write. And from the time I first published a book, people would come to me because many people want to write and are looking for the way in. They'd say, oh, my God, I, I want to do what you do. I want, I want to write. I, I want to write romance. I want to write mystery stories. I want to write science fiction. I want to write for kids. They're, they're filled with passion. But when we give kids, not real books, but what are called basal readers, those, those rated reading texts, what we're giving them are books that do not come from a place of passion. Nobody in 30 years has ever come to me and said, oh my God, I want to write a basal reader. It's just not, those are books that do not come from a place of passion. So whole language uses real books and also real writing. Kids write about real things. Going back to the Mrs. Crandall example, when I came to life as a writer was when I was not told what to write, but simply told to write, allowed to write about what mattered to me. And a whole language teacher engages the child more on the level of ideas than on technique. Technique is important. Some people think that people who use whole language, or like me who promote whole language, aren't interested in grammar, punctuation, Spelling. I am a demon on craft. Um, in this regard, much like your husband Saban, I believe that technique and craft are vitally important to art. But you also have to have passion behind that. If you are a master of punctuation and spelling, and there's no poetry in your work, and I mean I write prose, but there is poetry in the work. If nothing sings, then it doesn't make any difference if you can if you can be technically correct. So you have to have both aspects. And whole language does not discard the importance of technique and craft, but it engages them in support of learning to express yourself and engage a reader. That's a wonderful answer. I, with my kids, I always um, I don't censor what they read. I just tell them, you know, if they come to me and say, "Can I, you know, like my daughter in fifth grade wanted to read Divergent and or and what was or some of the other ones that are young adults are a little older, but I let her read everything, even though." Not all the moms in her grade are letting their kids, but I guess I always felt whatever my children had a passion for reading, that's what they could read. My middle daughter really couldn't read until about third or fourth grade, but when she started reading, she wanted to read vampire books. So I got her Bram Stoker's Dracula, and she read it. You know, I just think it's not just about passion for what you're writing, it's passion for what you're reading. Absolutely. And this is where people are misled, uh, people who get all uptight about grade level and reading levels. Because a book that's written at the fourth grade level but is boring 
will be hard for a fourth grader or a sixth grader to read. A book written at a sixth grade level that is absolutely fascinating can pull a fourth grader through. Interest level and interesting writing are much more indicative of how readable a book is than these lexile numbers. There is in um, learning to read what I call a, the virtuous um, spiral. And there are three aspects to it. And they are practice, proficiency, and pleasure. And they build on each other. The more you practice, the more proficient you become. The more proficient you are, the more pleasurable the reading becomes. The more pleasurable it is, the more you practice. The more they practice, the more proficient you are. And it spirals out. But if you take away any one of those three elements, it collapses. And the element most taken away in school is pleasure. We are, as a culture, very uncomfortable with the idea of pleasure. Uh, I think it goes back to our cultural DNA. The country is founded by this unholy mix of religious fanatics and transported criminals. <laughs> so we um, do a lot of bad things, but we feel guilty about it. <laughs> and then, and, then we forgive ourselves. Yes, exactly. But we are uncomfortable with pleasure. We're utilitarian. So uh, parents tend to worry about, well, will this get my kid into Yale? A five-year-old or an eight-year-old doesn't care what school they're going into. They just care if they're having a good time. Pleasure is what draws them into reading. And if we extract pleasure from the occasion, we don't feel comfortable about saying, we're teaching kids to read because it will enrich their life uh, for their entire life. We say we're teaching them to read because it will help them get a better job or into a better school. That does not play for the child. It is, is this fun? Do I like doing this? Do I want to do this? Pleasurable reading is what draws them in and makes them readers. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was an early reader. I went in a couple of months from reading C-Spot Run to reading whole novels. <laughs> and, um, and I, because neither of my parents had gone to college, I had I grew up with no college expectations, and I dropped out of high school to go to college early, and I did go to Yale. And um, you know, but for me, it was purely about what was fascinating to me. It was never about the expectations, and I was lucky that way. And you know, my children are not lucky the same way because, of course, I do have because I went to college and graduate school. I do have expectations, but um, so they can hate me later, or some of them hate me now. Um, well, so I going to ask you. Eventually, <laughs> I was going to ask you about your writing process, and I'm really fascinated because um, I have a goal to write 100 books before I go, before they peel my cold, stiff fingers off my keyboard and put me in the ground. So, tell me, you know, about your write. How many words a day? Are you words or pages a day? You know, what's your process? Um, so, start talking. I'm taking notes. <laughs> well, I mentioned being somewhat OCD, so I do. Um, I set very specific page goals. Um, and I don't usually make them. <laughs> I have uh, a spur that I use to write it that's very effective. I told you when I came in, I'm feeling quite light because I just finished my most recent book last night. Oh, what's uh, the name? What's it about? It's called Trolled. It's the third book in a set called Enchanted Files. The first one was originally published as Diary of a Mad Brownie with supporting documents. Um <laughs> But it turned out that title played much better with adults than it did with kids. So we're repackaging it as Cursed. Um, it's about a brownie, a Scots brownie. Uh, they are 12-inch high household creatures, uh, cleaners. He's, he's basically very fastidious. And he's assigned by reason of an ancient family curse to the messiest girl in Connecticut. <laughs> so it's basically the odd couple, the 12-year-old slop girl and a, and a 150-year-old 
Felix. Oh, fine. Um, the second book, and the format is it's it's a diary with all these documents, letters, shopping lists, articles, encyclopedia entries inserted uh, to break up the text. Second one is called Hatched, and it is about a griffin uh, who has run away because he's being teased by his siblings. And this is called Trolled. It is about a troll named Ned Thump who has been exiled from trolldom and is working. I was trying to figure out where to have the troll. The brownie was easy. He's 12 inches tall. He lives in the girl's closet. The griffin, big, but they're mountainous creatures, and I had the griffin inhabit an abandoned barn in the Catskills. Where could I put the troll? The troll is almost seven feet tall, weighs 345 pounds, and has a nose the size, almost the size of a dill pickle. And I thought, where can you? Oh, New York City, because... (laughs) In New York City, you can look like anything and people leave you alone. True. So the troll works as a night watchman under Grand Central Terminal. Um, anyway, I, I, I had a great deal of fun uh, working on this book. I love this troll. I'm not going to tell you the troll's secrets because the troll has two major mm-hmm. secrets. Um, but I, I finished last night partly because I have a thing called the bet. And I started this. The bet. The bet. And this started, um, gosh, over 20 years ago now. My best friend at the time was a woman named Paula Danziger. Paula burst under the children's literature scene um, with a book called The Cat Ate My Gym Suit. She was basically one of the founders of, of young adult writing as a separate genre. And Paula and I became great friends. I started a little bit later than she did. In 1991, I think, uh, we were both stuck on the books we were trying to write. It was mostly we were getting in our own way, as writers will do. Um, when you, You'd think you'd know what you're doing after a certain number of years. I've written 100 books, and every time I'm starting all over again. I bring a certain set of skills, but you just do – everyone is different. It's not like making birdhouses. Uh, and I don't want to put down birdhouses. They're wonderful things, but, but you have to bring something different to it each time. So we, we were kvetching to each other. Uh, I, I can't get the work done. I'm not getting anywhere. This I'm slowing down. And I can't remember which of us suggested it. We said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to, each going to write three pages tonight. They don't have to be good. They just have to exist. We'll call each other tomorrow. And whoever does not have three pages suffers unendurable shame. <laughs> so we called each other the next day and we had our, our pages. And they were actually pretty good because the problem was that we didn't know what to write. The problem was we were getting our way about trying to get it perfect the first time, which is just this deadly thing that writers do. I'm sorry, I have to give a quote from um, Jack London. I think it's Jack London. And now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Ah, or, yeah. I forget who it was the quote. Well, it's right on Facebook. It's very close to, to what I was experiencing there. So we did this for a number of years. But after a while, we started to kind of slack off. And we'd call and I'd say, do you have your pages? She'd say, no. She'd say, do you have your pages? I'd say, no. We realized that clearly shame had lost its sting. Mm. So um, we needed to up our game. And my assistant at the time suggested something that was the springboard for us. And we came to this agreement. We are going to have, we're going to call each other tomorrow. We're on the, on the hook for three pages. Whoever does not have their three pages has to send $10 to the George W. Bush re-election campaign <laughs> In his or her own name. There followed the two most productive years of our creative lives. Um, we lost Paula about seven years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, 
Yeah, it was very, it was very sad. Paula was was a, this wonderful, larger than life person. A larger, I mean, really in all ways, she's a very big woman, but she also wore brilliant, vibrant colors. And when she walked into a room, everything changed. And if you were at a big dinner, as we have sometimes have in publishing, and there are 20 tables, you look for the table where all the laughing was, that's where Paula was. Uh, as as uh, Hamlet says of York, she was wont to set the table on a roar. Um, and I, we talked every day on the phone. We were going on a trip once when my wife uh, was a company, and she said, okay, now I get it, because we were making each other laugh so hard that we just literally fell off furniture. <laughs> Uh, so for a while I wasn't doing this, and now my very dear friend Michael Stearns, um, who used to be my editor and is now writing himself, and I have the bet. And we run the bet every day this week. We both have deadlines. Who are you betting on now? Um, well, actually, we're, it's, it's the primary season. So I'm for Bernie. He's for Hillary. So we this is not so bad because um, this year things are so bad on the other side. We couldn't even bet on that. that. So if I fall down, I have to donate to his candidate. If he falls down, he has to den- donate to my candidate. And that has proved to be very, because, you know, I would rather put a fork in my eye than write those checks. So <laughs> it's been a very, very uh, useful spur to writing. Have you ever had to write the checks? No. Oh, <laughs> uh, every once in a while, you know, Michael said to me yesterday, there was a lot of family stuff going on. He said, you can take a mulligan for the day. But I got in, actually, I was on the hook for six hours. I did five and a half last night. And actually, since I finished the book last night, I took the half hour. So I said, okay, I've done this. Um, we were okay with that. Are, are you okay? So do you go by hours or by pages? Um, it depends on where we are in our process. Um, and sometimes it's, I'm going to do five hours and five pages. Uh, sometimes it's early in a book when I'm basically trying to find the shape of the book. Then it's more about hours and keeping my, in my chair to sit there at the desk. Because what I've learned is that I'm just at the desk doing the work. Even if I'm sitting there thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this, after a while I do it. But I need something to keep me in the chair. My friend Kathleen Dewey had the chance to interview Ray Bradbury once. Mm. And she asked for the secret of his success. And he replied with one compound noun. Ass glue. (laughs) So uh, are you an outliner or a pantser? (laughs) Both. <laughs> I, I often make an outline and then throw it away. Um, I started, I became, for a while, I was an intense outliner. And it happened because of a subset of publishing. I start with this. Publishing devours its young. And I started my career, my first three books were hardcovers with prestigious mainstream publishers. Um, Harper, it wasn't Harper, yeah, it was Harper and Rowe at the time. Cott and Pantheon, a division of Random House. But to make a living, I started working with, and feed my family, I started working with packagers. Now, the quick version of packagers, the quick reference point is Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. They're created by Edward Stratemeyer, who ran a thing called the Stratemeyer Syndicate. He created Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, Tom Swift, uh, Bobsy Twins, Rover Boys, and dozens of other series. And he would come up with the basic outlines and hire people to, to write them. Packaging is still going on. A packager is like the person who comes to you at a cocktail party and says, I've got a great idea for a book. Why don't you write it and split the money? Um, The difference is the packagers have already sold the book, and they do indeed have money to split. So I had had a chance. I saw that two companies were starting lines of occult thrillers for teenagers. This is a couple decades before Twilight. I thought, I can do that. 
and I sent them, uh, I, my agent made contact with them. I gave them some synopses, some ideas, and they said, okay, give us an outline before we can give you a contract. I thought, wow, this, I'd never written a book with an outline before. This is going to be very boring. Um, but it wasn't. What I discovered was when I worked for an outline, I always got where I said I was going to go, but I never got there the way I said I was going to do it. The outline is just a tool. People get hung up on the outline, and the question is, which is the master, the tool, or you? You have to be the master of the tool. But it gives you an endpoint to shoot for, and so I found them very useful in that regard. I tend to write very front-heavy outlines. So if I did a 10-page outline for a 100-page book, the first three pages of the outline might cover the first chapter, talking about the characters in the world and setting things up. Next two pages might be the second chapter. Third, or fifth page might be a chapter, and then there'll be three or four chapters per page. And then basically comes something that says, and then a lot of cool stuff happens, and we have this at the ending. So then what I do is I continue to work both on the book and on the outline. And so the book that I finished last night, I was on the seventh outline or synopsis for it. What I do is peel off the front and expand the back. I call it the ever-expanding outline. And that works for me. That's cool. I um I took the online class, James Patterson's, you know, master class in writing and How was that? It was okay. It was okay. It was good. There were things I learned, things it was like, no, that doesn't work for me. But he is a big proponent of a very serious outline and takes a month or a couple months to write them and so forth. But um I'm like you, I do both. I tend to write I usually know where I want to end up when I start a book and then an outline I usually write with an outline pad of paper next to me and then I'm doing prose while the outline is shifting. Yeah. So um reading is a gender issue. I presume I'm I'm guessing you think girls do it more than boys. So let me hear about this. Okay. Um yeah, I mean we we're always talking about the reluctant readers and nine times out of ten we're talking about, about boys. Um so look at it this way. At home, who reads to the child? Usually it's mom. Uh, if there's even a dad in the picture still, it's, it's usually mom. And sometimes dad's not even around anymore. Who teaches you to read? Kindergarten, second grade, or for kindergarten, first grade, second grade, when you're really learning to read. Nine times out of ten, your teacher is a woman. Who provides books at the library, uh, at the school library? Nine times out of ten, it's a female librarian. So kids who are trying to figure out how to be their gender, boys do not see reading as something that guys do. Mm. Um, you know, we have these celebrity posters in libraries. What we need are guys read posters, cops, firemen, grease monkeys, reading books, saying to a guy, saying to boys, it's okay to read. That's why it's so important. This thing that my dad did of reading to me made it okay for me. That's why it's so very, very crucial for dads to read to their kids both genders, but really boys need that. They need that permission. Now, let's back up a little bit and look at why it is that there's this female dominance among young kids. And that is, I believe, because the real currency in this culture is power. Who has power? Adult men. Who doesn't? Kids. Who are the pivot people in the equation? Women. Which is why it is more all right for women to work with kids than it is for men to work with kids. Because working with kids is give, seen as giving up power. Now, I mentioned that I work with kids because I saw it as the most powerful thing I could do because I'm thinking long term. But it is not okay to give up power in this culture. Um, 
You can see it in garments. Women can wear men's clothing. That is to access power. You gain more power by those vestments. Your vestments are invested with power. Transvestites wear different vestments. Um, it is not okay for men to wear women's clothes. Any woman can come into school wearing pants to teach. I could not go into school teaching second grade wearing a skirt. It is not because that is culturally inappropriate because you are giving up power by putting women's women's clothing. And you are seen as giving up power by choosing to work with kids. If you've been an adult male teaching second or third grade, uh, you will receive a subtle but unremitting pressure to do the right thing and become a principal, to claim a position of power. Mm. We think it's perfectly okay for a woman to spend her entire career teaching kindergarten. We secretly think there's something wrong with a man who wants to do the same thing. Well, and that plays out in reading, and that's why reading becomes for little kids, something they see as women doing, because that's who's with them. That's really interesting. My little daughter had an amazing kindergarten teacher who was a man, and he was great with her and for her, and um, that was a tough year in our family, and he was phenomenal. But I I wonder now, looking back, if I had some of those thoughts, because at the time I was just so grateful because he was so good with her. But in terms of gender um, roles and gender assumptions about reading – I have a great plumber. He works by himself. And he came in years ago to fix my refrigerator or something. And we, we started talking. I said, I'm an author. And here's blah, this book I've written, blah, blah. And he was really interested. So I gave him a book, never thought about it. A couple months ago, my refrigerator, no, was it, yes, my refrigerator was out again. So I called him. He came back. He told me everything about the book. He could quote passages. I was like, wow, you really read my book. He's like, yeah, I loved your book. I tried to leave an, uh, uh, a review on Amazon. I couldn't quite figure it out. But I loved your book. So I gave him the next book in the series. But I have to say, because of my own gender bias, I was surprised that my plumber, my male plumber, um, had read and enjoyed uh, and thoroughly enjoyed and remembered my book so well. So I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I hope there is. I've been saying it for a long time. <laughs> um and yeah, there's 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 that different kind of gender bias operating in, in that regard, and there's another kind of bias going there too. Uh, I think we have overprivileged, uh, in terms of its importance, a college education. There are many things that need to be done that are good and noble professions that we don't treat as seriously as we should. I remember uh, way back when I was teaching, we were having a job action going on, and one of my colleagues' husband. Uh, we were getting a lot of flack about it. He said, you know, if you don't value um, education and philosophy, uh, you privilege it above other things, then, then neither your, philosophy, your, your theories nor your pipes will hold water. Mm-hmm. We need both levels of, of work. I don't, think I, did, I don't think I quoted him quite correctly, but it's, it's always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's that's really interesting. I'll have to think more about that. Um, so, how did Oddly Enough come into your life, and how did you found Fullcast Audio? Um, oddly Enough is my business name. It is my official DBA. It means I can answer the phone saying, oddly enough, this is Bruce, which, <laughs> which allows me to do, and this is sort of how I like to live my life, it allows me to be a complete smartass and also totally business-like simultaneously. <laughs> Um, and I thought of it first because at one point I thought I might have to incorporate for tax reasons, which seemed so um, unusual for somebody who was trying to make his living in the creative world that I'd be incorporated. I thought, 
oddly enough, incorporated would be a good business name to express my feelings about the whole situation. <clears throat> as far as audio, which I have a deep passion for, um, I first fell in love with audiobooks when I was taking a cross-country trip with my daughter, who was 14 at the time. It's something I'd want to do for a few years, uh, first with my son, who was the oldest one, uh, but I never had time and money at the same time. I was a freelancer at that point. If I had time, it usually meant I had no money. If I had money, it was why I was working really hard and didn't have any time. Stars came in alignment, and one year I said to her, my son, and Ryan, do you want to do this? He said, no, I'm going to take some college classes this summer. I thought, oh, you little brat. So uh, a year or two later, I said to my daughter, let's do this, and she was all for it. And we set aside six weeks. And I knew I was going to be sending this. We're going to be we're going to drive all the way across the country. I said, wow. we'll get in the car. We'll drive west until we run into an ocean, then turn around and drive back and just see what we can see. We had no real itinerary. But we were spending hours a day in the car. And I thought, I'm going to be trapped in a moving metal box with a 14-year-old girl, which means a slightly insane person, <laughs> for hours every day. Um, and went to the library and took out several books on tape, as they were at the time. And this is how fast the technology continues to change. The car that I rented, because my clunker wasn't going to make it across country, didn't even have a cassette player in it. We got a boom box, and we plugged it into the cigarette lighter, and she held the boom box in her lap all the way across country. But we listened and listened, and I learned a couple of things. First, I learned that when you're driving through Kansas, pride and prejudice is riveting. And I also learned that when you listen together, it's an entirely different literary experience. I love reading aloud. But when I, as dad, read aloud, I was in charge of the book. I was the boss of the book, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, not thinking I want to be in charge of the book, but that's just the way it was. When you listen together, nobody can read ahead. You experience it at the same pace. And we found ourselves constantly, when we stopped for dinner or to go for a walk, talking about the stories and what was going on. And it was a really rich and wonderful experience to listen to those books. And I thought, wow, I, I love audiobooks. And a couple of years later, I was at one of the big publishing conferences, and I walked by, I was there as a writer, I walked by the recorded books booth, and I wasn't as brassy then as I am now, and so I sort of passed it by two or three times, and I finally stopped and said, you should have some of my books on tape. And he said, yeah, we should. And that was all it took to sell them. And I got, this is where the field goes at the time, I got a munificent three-figure advance on each book, just a couple hundred bucks. Um, and because I do perform and read aloud and speak aloud, uh, and I'm a storyteller, I was interested in trying to read one of the books. They didn't, that's particularly company, didn't like having authors read, but they did occasionally. They humored me by letting me do a, a test. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. And it wasn't surprising really. Their house style is quite measured, and they take, uh, in many cases, a fairly slow pace. Whereas you know by now, listening to me, I tend to rattle on a great clip. Um, so they did two books. And one of them I actually really liked very much. But the other, I was very unhappy with. I thought, next time I'm going to do it on my own. Because I'm always thinking, I always like trying new stuff. Well, a couple of years go by, and Tim Ditlow from Listening Library contacted me. His kid had been reading some of my books, and he wanted to know if he could buy the rights to do um, this particular book. And I said, no, I, I think I'm going to record it myself. He said, what, are you crazy? I said, yeah, everybody knows that. Um, but we had a conversation, began a conversation. And in the way of true collaborations, 
we are each convinced it was the other person's idea, but we decided we were going to try recording books with a full cast rather than a single reader. The dominant model for audiobooks has always been you plunk an actor in front of a microphone and have them read the entire book. Mm-hmm. And what we were going to do was, was record the books with a full cast reading them. Uh, at the time, uh, basically we were creating a new art form. I really feel that. There were a lot of multicast readings done by the BBC, but they were adaptations, not the book itself. And one of the struggles we had when we first started doing this was get people to understand what we were doing. They were not abridged. They were not adapted. They were not scripted. The only thing we cut out were the he said, she said dialogue tags that were made superfluous by having a full cast. But they were unabridged text. And I said, you know, and we can do it here in Syracuse because they're very expensive to do this way, but because I could hire local actors. And he said, how can you do that? Because he suffered from what I call the bi-coastal talent prejudice, which thinks that all talent is in New York City and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there are talented people everywhere, and I have a different pools that I draw on. Uh, Syracuse University has a great drama department. And we create uh, readers with young actors. There's talented kids everywhere. And I have had 12-year-old kids narrate books. And they're just so gifted and they so love the work. And their focus is so good. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite things about doing this is working with kids and watch them blossom as performers. So we started doing this. And we began to develop this rhythm and, and this art form. And we peaked with, we made the full cast recording of Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass which we did in London with a full cast drawn from the London stage and Philip narrating. It's an extraordinary piece of work. I can't take as much credit for that. I did not direct it because we did it over there. My job was mostly to be the interpreter of English to English. When the, <laughs> when the British director and the um, uh, American producer were having big arguments, I'd get on these three of a conversation with them and say, no, what he or she is really saying is <laughs> English to English. Um, we did this for about five years, and then Tim sold his company, Listening Library, which is the second oldest audiobook company. It had been founded by his dad to Random House. He called me to tell me that they were doing that. And I knew that my days were numbered, that they were going to look at the numbers and say, why should we spend this much money to create an audiobook and we just do it with a single reader? So, indeed, they said, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And But I had become hooked on doing it. I loved casting. I loved directing. I love bringing a crew of people together to read and to try to create this new listening experience. So eventually, I started my own company to do that. We were incredibly successful artistically, but it was a financial catastrophe because what I didn't have was the uh, back-of-the-house operation that had been built up by 40 years with listening library. Um, so we were much better at creating than I was at, at selling them because I was more interested in making them than I was in selling them. Um, but I've done it for 15 years now, produced over 100 books for, for my own company, um, some of the longest full-cast audios, audios ever created. Other people are using this form to some extent now when, when the book calls for it. What is some of your favorite? Oh, um, well, we did several of Robert Heinlein's, what were called the boys' books, um, Have Space, Suit, Will Travel, uh, Star Beast, Between Planets, which I narrated, uh, but we had a full cast. Uh, Shannon Hill's books, The Goose Girl, was a fabulous one. My good friend Tamara Pierce, I call her the great enabler. Uh, Tammy is a hugely successful writer of young adult books. Um, her first book, Alana. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, she, she basically, Tammy created the girls who kick ass fantasy genre. 
she is the the godmother of, of all the books that followed with these tough um, female warrior characters. But she used to be in a radio company here in New York. And she loved, and she said, oh, well, if you want to start your own company, when I was talking about this after Random House had closed down um, Words Take Wing, which is my first imprint, uh, she said, you could do my Circle of Magic books, and you'd be perfect for Nico, who's this great character. So, you know, there was a real gentle shove from behind. But we've done uh, for he, about 14 of Tammy's books. In fact, we made audiobook history because Tammy wrote a book knowing our repertory company. Mm. All the had to be drawn. She wrote a book in that Circle of Magic series crafting the parts for actors that she knew could do them. She, she designed the characters oh, for these cool. actors. And then it's something I think every author would dream of doing if they knew what was possible. Uh, we did the table read. And she was revising that book because we, we went straight to audio with it before it went to print. Wow. And she was revising as we recorded. She directed it because an actor could say, I'm not sure I understand this line. She'd say, yeah, you know what? I can do a better job on that. So when that book went to the publisher, it was polished to the nth degree because she'd had this full cast of gifted actors bring it to life for her. It was a fabulous experience. That's amazing. That's a great story. Uh, so that's cool. You have a fan art page on your website. What's that about, and why do you have one? <laughs> um, I, have, I have to. That makes me blush a little bit because uh, the website was being curated by my oldest son, who now lives in the Philippines and isn't doing much with it. So I, I need to to actually bring the fan the, the fan art page and the whole website back to new life. It's a it's a bit of a sore spot with me right now because I. I am aware that I have been lax in dealing with the, the website the way I should. I, it's, it, Orion, my, my oldest son, designed it, and uh, teachers love the website because there's lots of information on there. And it's really well put together, and it's got a lot of stuff, but I'm not refreshing as often as, often as I should. I'm blushing now. No. So we have about five minutes left, and um, going back more to you, who has inspired you? Ah, okay. Well, I'll start with... <clears throat> Both my parents, my dad with the reading store that I told you about, and my mother, um, who was a reader, who introduced me to musical theater, which is one of the great passions of my life, and who had uncompromisingly high standards for us. Um, there's, this will give you a sense of, of my relationship with mom, who I adored, but it was never quite good enough. When I was a uh, high school salutatorian, the first words out of her mouth were, you know, if you tried a little bit harder, <laughs> now to tell you the nature of our relationship, 20 years later, we were talking, I said something about, you know, no matter what I did, it was never good enough. And she said, if you were talking about the time you were salutatorian, so it was right at the tip of her tongue 20 years later. Um, we had, oh my God, I could make her laugh. She could make me laugh because dad was a traveling salesman and I was the oldest who stayed up latest. We talked a lot in the evenings during the last hour before I went to bed and had a really great relationship. My first writing mentor was a woman named Helen Buckley Simicwitz. She publishes Helen Buckley. And uh, she taught children's literature at um, the school where I got my degree. I went to three different schools because I bounced around. Uh, and I went to her when I was taking the first class with a novel that I was working on. It was the first novel that I, a kid's novel that I uh, had really tried my hand at. And I gave her the first couple chapters to read. 
which is, this is not a writing class. She was not required to read it, but she was gracious in doing so. And she said to me, this is really good. I'm going to make an offer I don't usually do. If you finish the book, I'll read the whole book for you. And I finished the book just so I could have her read the book for me. Um, I took two more classes from her. That book (laughs) that she finished reading, I never did sell, but I also never gave up on it. And uh, I say never did sell. Actually, two years ago, Random House bought it as part of a multi-book contract. And the next thing I'm turning my hand to is this manuscript that I've been working on off and on for over 40 years. Um, So she was hugely important. Uh, My dear friend, Jane Yolen, who is an incredibly accomplished children's book writer, over 300 books to her, but was also an editor at Harcourt, um, worked with me on Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher, which is the book that I would guess would be around longest after I'm pushing up daisies. So she was an inspiration. And then there's all the people you read, people you never met, but people you read who think, make you think, I want to do this. I want to write something that good. So uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, when I was in my uh, early everything, teens. Everything, yeah. everything. Tarzan, John Carter. Oh! Carson of Venus. I read them all. What was it? The Journey of the Center of the Earth. I read Pelucida, them all. Yes. Oh, I'm. Oh, we could sit and talk about that forever. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, that was like the John Carter was the first adult, quote unquote, book that I read, mm-hmm. and oh, I wanted, I wanted to be John Carter. I wanted to live on Mars. I loved those books so much. <laughs> um, so he was an early inspiration, and then just all the other wonderful readers, uh, writers that I've read. We we have like two minutes, so I just want to make sure people know how to reach you. I know you have a Twitter account, so please, again, um, give the listeners your website, how they can reach you, how they can follow you on social media and so forth. Okay. Uh, the website is easy, www.brucecoville.com. Let me spell Coville. It's C-O-V as in Victor, I-L-L-E. Uh, a lot of people have a tendency to put an extra L in before that V. Don't. You'll get somebody else altogether. C-O-V-I-L-L-E. Uh, I have two pages, three pages on Facebook, actually. There is my my uh, personal page, which is maxed out at 5,000 friends, which drives me crazy. And I keep trying to get people to move over to the fan page, but we have a lot of debate and political fights on my personal page. It's much more, it's a little bloody over there, but it's a lot more fun. But there's a fan page, uh, Bruce Coble, and also a full cast audio page. And there is the Twitter account. I'm just Bruce Coble there. You can follow me there too. Thank, thank you so much for being here. And I hope you'll come back, come back again, maybe to when a book is coming out or something. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. So that was Bruce Coville, the one and only um, author extraordinaire. And I was so delighted to have him here in the studio. Um, so thank you, Bruce, for being on. And to everyone who's listening, thanks so much for to- joining us. Please come back on Valentine's Day at 1 p.m. to hear sculptor Sabin Howard talk about the National World War I Memorial. And on Friday, February 26th at 1 to hear Commissioner Edwin Fountain. Thanks again. Take care. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.